Welcome back. This is Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. Today we're going to talk about the dominant religion in America, which is self-invention, and the Beatitudes as Christ preached them in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you may be aware of the growth of Satanism in the country, and it's a different take on Satanism. It's a Satanism that seems to enshrine middle-class values. And we didn't get there overnight, but it's worth the story to tell and remember how we got to SatanCon in Phoenix this weekend and what it might mean in regards to self-invention and the Beatitudes. Stay tuned for more. It's gotten some press in the Phoenix, Arizona area, not so much down in Tucson, but Satanists have declared SatanCon, which will meet this weekend in Scottsdale, Arizona, to a sold-out crowd. Apparently, it was inspired because Satanists asked to have a moment to offer a prayer at uh, the city council meeting for Scottsdale. They were declined because the reason that was given is that Satanists had no really significant presence in Scottsdale. At least I would say no public presence. But what they did is they brought a lawsuit into the federal court to demand that they be allowed to offer a prayer to Scottsdale City Council meeting. But that was declined. And so the roots of SatanCon which is set to happen up in Scottsdale this weekend. SatanCon, according to its organizers, will offer lectures and panels presented by the temple's congregation, that's the Satanic Temple, as well as the entertainment options and, not surprisingly, a Satanic marketplace. Satan has always been big into marketing. The keynote speaker will be Lucian Greaves, a founder of the Satanic Temple. And the lectures and panels will focus on campaigns that the temple and Satanists cha challenge, such as efforts to protect members' reproductive rights, read abortion, fight psychiatric abuse, people disagreeing with you, protect children from abuse in schools, who knew Satan was for that, and then to promote addiction recovery and a temple after-school club for kids. Isn't that interesting? It's based on, according to its organizers, Lupercalia, uh, which is an old Roman feast. And so it's called Lupercalia in Scottsdale. Historically, Lupercalia was an ancient pagan festival that took place in Rome. Historians describe it as a bloody, violent, and sexually charged celebration, a wash with animal sacrifice, random matchmaking, read polyamory, and coupling in the hopes of warding off evil spirits and infertility. There's a good reason for fornication. Evil spirits will not bother you. Apparently, the evil spirits are the other guy, because as you know, the other guy is responsible for all of Satan's problems. I've been reading a book which kind of tuned me into all of these things. It's by an Oxford-trained theologian named Isabella Tara Burton. She's an interesting story. She's a convert to Christianity, though I don't know which branch she, she uh, considers herself to be a member of or whether she's generically Christian. I, I have no idea. But her book is about 
the nuns, when people, and by the nuns is uh, no uh, identification uh, with an institutional religion. It's an intuitive approach um, to meaning and purpose in your life. When I mean intuitive, it's you think it up yourself. And here's what she said in her book, Strange Rights, which is a great read about what is happening in the country. And very, very uh, much, in a sense, in sympathy with trying to let people explain why they are into polyamory or Wiccan witchcraft or into conspiracy theories or uh, any number of things, including Satanism, uh, that she covers. But here's what she says about the state of American religion. She says that the spiritual but not religious who practice these rituals are a religion of emotive intuition, of aestheticized and commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies. A religion for a new generation of Americans raised to think of themselves both as capitalist consumers and as content creators. A religion decoupled from institutions, from creeds, from metaphysical truth claims about God or the universe or the way things are. But it still seeks in various and varying ways to provide us, or their adherents at least, with the pillars of what religion always has, meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. And she said is, it may be good for 10 years, at which point they're off to whatever the next thing is. That's the book is Strange Rites. But the key here is self-creation. We are the content creator. And it the root of it is consumerism and this weird American uh, autonomy. The idea that we're all equal, therefore everybody's opinion matters the same. Uh, nobody can know the truth, so I can make up whatever I want. And that is not far off from how people think. So it's how do you achieve the good life here and now? So here's one example she gives, which many of you may be familiar with. It's how um, Hinduism kind of came into our country as self-help, which is a massive industry now where uh, they teach Buddhist poses, always usually some attractive young woman, and uh, offering wonderful advice on how to allow yourself to just uh, be influenced uh, by meditation. So she writes in another article that in 1920, 100 years ago, on September 19th, the Indian yogi and guru Paramahansa Yogananda arrived in Boston as the Indian delegate for the Unitarian Conference of Religious Liberals. So this is Unitarianism, which comes out of the Puritan experiment in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yogananda's arrival, along with an earlier visit by another Indian teacher, Swami Vivekananda, began yoga's rise on these shores into a major industry as well as one of the most significant examples of syncretism, a religious and cultural mashup in the history of the rest. She calls it remixed religion. A remixed religion is the idea that you're a faithful Catholic, but you believe in reincarnation, that resurrection is just your reincarnation. And so for this 
particular branch of American self-help religion. It puts together yoga poses, um, which really are an imitation of the Hindu sun god, and uh, then um, exercises in self-realization because it's, the purpose of it is to actualize the real person that's in you because that's where you're going to find the answers. They're already contained inside you. So Jung and Ananda started a self-realization fellowship, which eventually offered as many as 800 temples, ashrams, and retreats in 60 countries. It was a blend of traditional Hindu practice with the American self-help culture. It resulted in the flowering of a lot of different movements around transcendentalism, which was an earlier 19th century uh, experience. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Walt Whitman, very focused on the self. Walt Whitman's famous poem, Song of Myself, is about him as a self connected to all other selves. It almost sounds like Christianity, but Christianity really without God. Or here's the other one, the New Thought um, religion, which began again in the 19th century. Um, these roots go way back to the Reformation, but new thought is still with us. New thought is Robert Schuller, the power of positive thinking. It goes right back to the 19th century. Do you remember the Crystal Cathedral, the Crystal Cathedral in Orange County that was this, basically this huge TV station for Robert Schuller's Hour of Power? Well, after he died and the family had a falling out with each other, I think the irony is, is the Diocese of Orange County ended up buying the Crystal Cathedral and making it the Catholic Cathedral because it was cheaper than actually buying land in Orange County and building a building. Uh, Orange County, by the way, uh, has uh, uh, deep connections to another community of self-realized individuals called the Oneida community, which existed in upstate New York prior to the Civil War. Oneida Silverware, a famous silverware manufacturer, that's how the community uh, supported itself. But the Oneida community was built around polyamory, and this is in the 1840s and the 1850s. And a group, apparently, after the Oneida community kind of imploded, um, polyamory is for people that think that polygamy is too too restrictive, but they moved out to Orange County. And so uh, Orange County comes by its odd uh, religious history, um, honestly, I guess, is one way to think about it. But uh, the idea of the new thought or recreating yourself, it's still with us in Christianity. It's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And think of these prominent speakers uh, on the power of positive thinking, Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland. You may have seen them on TV or heard about them flying around in their private jets because they've been self-actualized. Well, the idea of putting together religion and self-help, it's at the heart of all of this. And so back to the story of Yogananda. So he wrote a, really a best-selling autobiography called The Autobiography of a Yogi. And it was um, a huge success, wrote it. Um, and uh, it had a big impact on Steve Jobs, the head of uh, Apple Computer. At his funeral, 
he had copies of autobiography of a yogi handed out to everybody who attended his funeral. And uh, another book towards the end of his death in the early 1970s that Yogananda wrote was called The Second Coming of Christ. And in his book, The Second Coming of Christ, The Resurrection of the Christ Within You, published in 1979, when Yogananda was 86 years old, revealed in Yogananda's words, the complete harmony and basic oneness of original Christianity as taught by Jesus Christ and original yoga. In fact, he'd gotten back to the roots of all religions, which he put into his book. In addition, he proposed to show that these principles of truth are the common scientific foundation of all true religions. Because you don't have to found belief in faith or trust in God. Why would you do that when you know that truly it's scientific? And so yoga posing as self-help. Everywhere, this self-help culture. Gwyneth Paltrow has her entire industry of uh, health products based on self-help. The wellness culture, political cults left and right, people are finding meaning and purpose in their life through stories they have self-invented. In uh, Dr. Burton's book, she wrote about all the fan literature that surrounds Harry Potter and how that brings meaning into people's lives, where they just change the story. It's like someone gives you the Bible, this fixed story, but you just rewrite it. Oh, wait a minute, Thomas Jefferson did that. This religion is at the founding story of America. And I hope to get into it a little deeper after we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. You know what I like about SatanCon, because that's how we started talking about this. SatanCon at least has truth in advertising. This idea that the Satanic can just as well hide in plain life in middle-class morality. Could you imagine any of the topics about abortion, reproductive rights, uh, protecting children in the school, whatever the value is to a particular individual? Do you think people in the slums of Nairobi are interested in that, or is it just wealthy, uh, white, middle, and upper-class Americans that find these religions attractive? Why? Because they can have them on their own turf. But the gospel's different. In Luke's Sermon on the Mount, or as it's called by some, the Sermon on the Plain, which I'll explain, is blessings and curses. Blessed and happy are you. Woe to you. Where is that in all of this? But Jesus has a very different understanding of religion. I want to leave you with some words from T.S. Eliot because I think T.S. Eliot's a great poet. But he wrote the four quartets and the first is a poem called Burnt Norton. And towards the end of the poem it says, Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. Yep, you don't make it up for yourselves. Let's now turn to Jesus. Jesus doesn't believe in making up religion for yourself. In fact, he's gonna tell you how it really is. And so in Luke chapter six, we hear the Sermon on the Plain. Now, a little explanation. Both Luke and Matthew agree this sermon took place on a mountain. 
But Luke goes and describes it as being on a flat part of the mountain. And present wasn't just Jews. In Luke's telling of the story, it was Jews and Gentiles. He says, from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon, everybody's there as they hear the Son of Man say, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude and insult you and denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven. For their ancestors treated the prophets in the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for their ancestors treated the false prophets in this same way. What's the Old Testament background for the Sermon on the Mount? And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 28. And the scene is on Mount Ebal, and the people are getting ready to cross the Jordan River to go into Israel. And um, Moses instructs them that when they get into the Promised Land, they're to erect a pillar, and they're to put the law on the pillar. And then he goes into um, this understanding of blessings and curses. He gets half the people on one mountain, half the people on others in Deuteronomy, and half the people say, blessed are you if you do this. And the other half says, cursed are you if you do this. And so the idea of blessings and curses is very much about Mosaic law. But think about what Jesus holds up as uh, blessings. To be poor, to be hungry, to weep, to be persecuted. Because all of those things about being poor, hungry, weep, and persecuted are about dependence on God not on the idols of this world. And then what are really the curses in this world? Those of you who are rich or full or laughing or praised because you're filling yourself up with things are just gonna go away. So when you look at self-help religion, uh, they turn Jesus' cursings into blessings and it may make sense as a natural religion, but you have to have a lot more belief in how far any of this will take you. You know, in Luke's gospel in the first chapter, he sets the tone for the gospel, which is the world turned upside down. And it's Mary's Magnificat when she says, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And then she continues on. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he's filled with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped Israel, his servant, remembering his mercy. So for all of those who think that the poor will come to Satan calm so they can go to the satanic master marketplace, you know, maybe not going to happen. Because Satan con is just what the satanic is. It's all about marketing things that cannot satisfy the human heart. Why do people want these things? This is what T.S. Eliot said, the human cannot handle too much reality. So let's talk about the problems of consumerism and self-help and how these became salvific um, in this strong current now running through American culture. And I would suggest to you, it's been there since the beginning. Thank you.
When I was in high school, we had a religion class taught by Brother Chris, and the text for the religion class was I'm Okay, You're Okay by Thomas Anthony Harris. And in it, there were actually some useful things in it, but it was a book of psychology, not a book of Catholic morality. So the idea of the problem of going through life thinking I'm okay, but everybody else is screwed up, or I'm screwed up, but everybody else is okay, or um, everybody's okay. Uh, the real Catholic position is, I'm not okay and you're not okay. I'm not sure that came through very strong in that class, but the idea, the reality, that we cannot fix ourselves. I'm not okay, friends, and you're not okay, but I'm getting better. The human condition cannot bear very much reality because the human condition is very broken. The idea of SatanCon is that it pitches self-help and buying products. Doesn't this sound like bigger than just this, uh, uh, this convention going up in, in Scottsdale this week? That they're Band-Aids, that it offers therapy, it offers diversion, it offers uh, some kind of consolation. Uh, what I would say is a Band-Aid. Uh, for what is a deep spiritual cancer gnawing at everybody's heart. Our, our conventions like SatanCon are not anti-religion. They're posing a different religion because all the people there are still struggling with what every human being struggles with, which is meaning and purpose in life. But what happens when you quit believing that there's anybody there to help you? that the only way it will get better is alcohol, drugs, sex, or your next pur purchase of a luxury item. You know where this comes from? It's this crisis of meaning starts in the Protestant Reformation. And in England, and we are a colony of England, and culturally this comes through very strong. Do you remember that Henry VIII rebelled against the Pope and then declared that the king was the head of the English church? So, Instead of St. Peter being appointed by Jesus, Henry VIII appoints himself and claims that that's God's will. Well, what it does is it, it just blows Christianity apart in England into three main parts. Catholics who just wouldn't knuckle under and so were actively persecuted, and still to this very day, uh, the butt of jokes in English culture, or people who knuckled under and joined the Church of England, which I think the last time I read it in England itself has less than 100,000 adherents, uh, which is something less than a wholehearted acceptance of Henry VIII's top-down Reformation. I point out that the English Church is the only example of a Reformation that comes from the top, not the bottom. And then the third part was the Puritans, and that's who settles Americans. And the Puritans unlike the Catholics or unlike whatever connections the Church of England might have to historical Christianity, the Puritans are just self-created. They're Calvinists. And so John Calvin comes up with what really the Bible really means, and this is what the Puritans uh, believe in. And they are persecuted just like the Catholics are persecuted in the early part of England. But there's a backlash, and in, the, in less than 100 years, after the death of Henry VIII, maybe a little more than 100 years, Charles I, who was the King of England, had his head cut off by the Puritans. Uh, and Oliver Cromwell 
in the English Civil War. It's one of those ironies of history, just like the Oneida community going out to Orange County. Is, it's one of those irons, ironies of history that the English will criticize the French for cutting off that king, head of their king in, um, in the 1790s, not much more than 100 years uh, after that. Well, the point is, is that the Puritans that did that and then took over England, they're the ancestors of the people that decide that, boy, if the king can decide to break with Rome, then we can decide to cut off a king's head. If we can cut off a king's head, then we could just shop around and get our own king, one that fits us. And that's why Queen Elizabeth, who is knuckling under to Prince Charles and his, and his uh, consort, that Queen Elizabeth is not really English. Her whole house is German uh, because the English just imported their kings after that. Well, this is the point of that. So what do you do? when the moral authority of your religion and your government is simply the power of the king. In 1640, uh, 1667, was it? Um, I probably got off a little bit, but not by very much. 1667, I think. John Milton wrote a poem called Paradise Lost. And this, it's a well-known story. You know the story. It's uh, Satan loses his battle with God. He's cast into hell by uh, Michael the Archangel. So he makes war on humanity to get back at God, not so much passive as very aggressive. And then it's the fall of Adam and Eve. That's the story of Paradise Lost. Paradise Regained and the story of Christ is another poem. But in the very first book that of uh, Paradise Lost, Milton speaks about who Satan is. And See if this sounds familiar when it comes to American culture, because Milton was talking about the culture he lived in when you could, just a few years prior to writing this, this uh, poem, where you just cut off the king's head and take over. Here's what Milton wrote in book one, Paradise Life Lost, and it's Satan shaking his fist at God, and here's what Satan says. A mind not to be changed by place or time the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he, God, whom thunder hath made greater, here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built, here for his envy will not drive us hence from our minds. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And so when you make it up for yourself, what is it that you've really found? You know, Milton was writing both politically and religiously about the problem of self-invention, which is at the heart of the Reformation and what has come out of the Reformation. The Puritans in Massachusetts in the late 17th century, not long after Milton uh, wrote this poem, imploded because they started open tent revivals, which has been a huge part of, uh, of American religion practice. And then the people that went there, moved by a preacher, 
No, they'd been moved by the, uh, the Spirit of God. And so they cut off from the Puritan theocracy, and it really was Sharia law in America, for their own version of what the Puritan religion should be. And from there, you trace American fundamentalism, congregational churches, the whole American experience of God. You go to the middle of the 19th century with Ralph Waldo Emerson, where his famous essay, um, which is called Self-Reliance, which is, I make myself. It's the poem, a, po a, a, a Song of Self by Walt Whitman. It's at the heart of Henry David Thoreau and his, and, uh, his return to nature, that if we could just get back to what it means to be a human being, that we would experience ourselves anew and find our answers to all our questions. And so we're back to SatanCon. And it's what I love about SatanCon, and I know people are concerned about it, but I would say there's one great virtue to it, as it has all these middle-class values that Americans uh, for this particular stripe can believe in, that is just part of our American landscape that drives Catholics crazy. But what SatanCon is, is truth in advertising. What happens when you just make it up for yourself? Here's something to think about. For some people in our country, gravity is a conspiracy to keep us from floating free. What happens when you just check out of reality? When you just make it up for yourself and say it's the same as the truth? Human beings cannot bear much reality. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just tells us what a blessing really is and what a curse really looks like. Something to think about this week as you hopefully think about Oro Valley Catholic and keep our nation in prayer. And so until, until next time, pray for me and friends, I pray for you.